you can simultaneously say maybe we should rethink the sort of wild west attitude we have towards creation of human life on one hand and at the same time say well if the life has been created well then it needs to be protected and dignified um, these are not mutually exclusive Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm here as always with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Excellent. Yeah, we're uh, we're doing well. We're riding out a hurricane down here. Everything okay? So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not a, you know, if the, if the island... Um, so long time Islanders aren't worried about it then. Okay. Yeah. Then we're not too worried about it. Although I grew up in Baton Rouge, got hit by hurricanes all the time. So it was, it's still worth it. Still Yawn. worth it in February, Matt. No matter how uh to rebuild, you still <laughs> rebuild the t shirt. You don't have to go ice fishing, whatever that is. <laughs> Well, gosh, that was some witty banter already. I had some other witty banter planned about collar wearing. I actually just wore my collar uh, out to lunch for the first time in a while. I've been thinking about wearing it more. How do you all think through wearing your collar? Where and when do you wear it out in the world? I mean, for me, it just depends. Like if I'm if I'm going to Starbucks just to study or something, I'll wear it because okay. that that usually gives uh, people will ask questions. We'll just go and say, say hey. I had I've been thinking about this or though I can you pray for me or whatever mm -hmm. and and that that only happens to me when I'm wearing a collar so sure. it's a, it's a good thing but you know sometimes like in my church we have a lot of people who are coming into Anglicanism from more evangelical uh, places who still have real hard time with the liturgy and and the, all the stuff that, that for to them smacks of Roman Catholicism so when I'm meeting with one of those people, I don't wear my collar and uh, not because I'm ashamed of it, but just because yeah, I don't want to give them the willies right off the bat. I right? let, let them come in a little bit. And, and then, I mean, I'm already wearing the chasuble and all that kind of stuff on Sunday morning. That's right. You're already smoking them out. I'm totally freaking out. I just need <laughs> yeah. lunch. Right. I walk in with my, you know, Beretta or whatever. So, 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 so. <laughs> Your Dalmatic. I just learned out, I just learned what a Dalmatic was. I was like, what yeah, is that it's, thing? Um, it's a, for a, well, I've worn I've worn mine increasingly more. Uh, I wear it almost every. Well, if I'm going in around the church in any official capacity, um, I wear it. I think if I'm doing anything sort of well, where I want to be seen as a as an ordained clergy person, then I um, clergyman, then I wear it. And I think it's you know I find that it's either the fragrance of Christ or the stench yeah. of death. People, you know, it's either people repel, you know, kind of look sideways, or people brighten up and smile. And so I've I've taken to wearing it more and more frequently because it's become more and more countercultural. You yeah, know, I mean I, I think, think that's, that's kind right. of what um and now the real question though is do you wear the plastic Clara cools or do you wear <laughs> oh, the yeah. actual well you need to reconsider that, I think. You do you are you starching and ironing collars? No, I buy them. They stay uh hard for like just four months. I mean, if you rotate them in. So I buy I buy every year I buy like four or five of the of the linen ones and then um and so I just I make a habit of not wearing, uh, you know, plastic on my part of my part of my clothing. <laughs> Gen generally speaking, <laughs> this flesh has never touched plastic. <laughs> That's not true. I don't want I mean, plastic is very useful. <laughs> it should not be used as a clothing, uh, as as an accessory, or maybe a watch band. I don't know. Anyway, I think no, we all wear cools. full 
all the way around the neck, right? Yeah. I I mean, I, I, the new guys that are ordained, like my assistant right now, who's just been ordained a priest, he just learned how to do the dog collar because he so he was wearing a tab for like a year because it's hard to it's hard to get that the buttons. That's not fastened. part of the Cranmer Fellowship. We don't <laughs> teach that, right? <laughs> but, but so now he just started. So yeah, always the dog collar because I think that, that, that differentiates you from a Roman Catholic. Person. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Pro tip for anyone who wants to get non. Um, Ami color uh, clergy shirts. Go to propercloth.com and get covered placket and yeah, a band like, collar. Like a, like a snob. I, mean, I know colored. <laughs> All my shirts well, are gray, and that's how I'm going to my grave. Uh, well, it's, it's, imagine your complexion, though. So that, that, yeah. that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> what goes with pallid squalor? I mean, like a squalid. Uh, what am I like squalid? Uh, yeah. Is that a word? Yeah, <laughs> sure. Mixing too. Yeah, we go. It's a neologism, like the one Ann Kennedy is famous for using. <laughs> well, let's talk about uh, what we have decided to talk about today. Uh, we thought we'd talk about the implications of modern procreation. This is in the news a lot, obviously. Of course, we would say that the Lord has designed childbirth to occur in the context of the lifelong union between a man and a woman proceeding naturally from sexual activity. Husband and wife have sex, become pregnant, have a child, rinse and repeat. But that's not always the case these days, even outside the most common issue you see in the news, the obvious moral evil of abortion. For instance, there was a recent Wall Street Journal article about a man traveling around the country trying to make some kind of connection with the 96 children he fathered via anonymous sperm donation in college. And of course, there's surrogacy, IVF, contraception in general, all with their own complicated moral calculus. Now, what are we to think of these things? JD, maybe we start with you. You've been open about your own experiences with in vitro fertilization and then so-called snowflake adoption. Why don't you explain what those things are, the moral questions that you and Liza asked and answered, and we can let our discussion go from there. Sure. Um, well, well, beginning with in vitro, I think it's most people would understand it as what it used to be called uh, test tube babies. I mean, that was kind of the idea in vitro and glass. Uh, I believe that's what it means. And we it's essentially there's a variety of ways that it can be done. But but in general, it simply means that they're helping the fertilization of an embryo take place outside of the woman's body. And then it's and it's implanted back in. And there you have it. So it's for people who have difficulty for all sorts of reasons conceiving, you know, whether that's sperm count quality or egg age or I don't know. I mean, it's there's there's a million different reasons why it doesn't work. Um, but the end result is that it always um, it, it, it can be almost without ex- exception um, compensated for by this technology. So this technology is amazing in many ways because it's allowed for people like us um, who uh, for all sorts of reasons, um, we're not able to conceive naturally, although we're still praying. You're praying people out there would be happy to to have that um, Abraham Sarah moment. But um, nevertheless, we were able to avail ourselves of this technology back in Berlin. Initially, we did it in Berlin and Vienna, and then we finally successfully did it in the U.S., and it was a great joy. Now, um, the when we were in this world, you we learned a lot of things, and thank goodness, a dear friend of mine who was in Berlin 
at the time studying with me, uh, he and his wife were also going through this and he was a little less um, overwhelmed um, emotionally by the, the seeming loss of this possibility of having children and was able to help me in the middle of some pretty substantial grief make some decisions and walk through this sort of landmine field of moral choices um, in a very Christian way, in a way that I'm very grateful for. Because what happens is, in particularly with IVF and this, these reproductive technologies, is that people get into a situation where they're they're deeply wounded. You know, there's a lot of loss there. You know, the the the, the cry of the barren is a real um, lament. It's a very deep pain. And so the doctors in their, I think, probably beneficent desire to have give them babies uh, really don't take into account, with few exceptions, the fact of what they're actually creating are human lives, you know, just really, really tiny ones. And so you have the, the tragic situation of people who, in the middle of their grief, the doctors are saying, we're going to do everything we can to get you a baby. And so what they do is they end up fertilizing as many eggs as they can harvest. And so... The way that we approached it, we said, well, we won't, we don't want any more fertilized than we are um, willing to have. You know, we're just assuming that if we fertilize 10, then we'll have 10 children. Um, that didn't end up being the case, but, but nevertheless, that's, that was a way of making the decision because we really, well, we believe that each, you know, conceived embryo is simply a human life. Um, now, the problem is, is that the doctors, when they don't, and this will have something to do with soap like adoption, getting there, yeah. the doctors will create just as many as they possibly can, because the more chances you have, the more likely you are to have a baby. Well, so you have, let's say, 12 embryos, and they implant two, and you have a child, and then they do two more, and say you only really wanted three children, so you have leftover. In some cases, we have people who know have 14, 15, 16, and those are just personal knowledge. I mean, I'm sure that there are people with more. And so the doctors will be more than happy to simply let them die. Uh, they'll just be discarded. Um, or you can pay to keep them frozen for an indefinite period of time. But the problem is at some point, the you know, when you just age out of the ability to have them, then you have signed their death warrant, or at least you have passed on the responsibility to your children and their children to keep them frozen indefinitely. Or you can, as is becoming more often or more often the case than certainly was, you can put them up for adoption. And so that's what's called snowflake adoption. And so we, our two twin boys are um, not biologically, well, it's a weird thing to say, they aren't genetically um, our sons. And yet Liza carried them full term, the twin boys, and they were given up for adoption by their biological parents. And when I think about having gone through the IVF world, um, thinking about those people and the sort of selfless act that they did to not just simply say, well, you know, we're going to let these babies die. It really, I tear up thinking about it. But I also hope and assume that there was a prayer of some sort. You know, I don't know if these people are Christians or not, but there was some hope that somebody someday would take it upon themselves to bring these children to let them grow and let them live. And so there's an increasing number of people doing that uh, because it does recognize, you know, that, that um, you know, these babies were conceived in some cases in very, um, we should say, morally suspect ways, you know, sperm donation. Maybe there was a, um, maybe there's 20 extra ones. I mean, maybe, I mean, who knows how they came about, but the fact that they're there and just sitting there is a reality. And so there have been more 
Christian people, although maybe not exclusively Christian, who said, you know, we're going to go get these get these kids, get these babies. And so there's a wait list for that, too, just so you know. I mean, that's what you know. all these people talk about. The pro-life people don't care about adoption or anything like there's a there's a wait list even for getting surrogate um, uh, snowflake embryos. So, so that's a long way of saying that, you know, well, that's the beginning of this conversation, but that was our experience with it. It is our experience. So even when there is a moral complication in the creation of a human life, that doesn't at all necessarily make the furtherance and care for that life any less morally required. That's right. I mean, I think you can talk about it two different ways. You can say you can be cautious and suspicious of some of the um, freedoms that this technology has allowed. We can talk about, you know, I just read recently about how they're trying to form um, embryos out of just one person's stem cells. And I don't know how that, what that even looks like or what that would even mean. But, you know, the question was, should we try this? Yeah. Well, probably not. But you can simultaneously say, maybe we should rethink the sort of wild west attitude we have towards creation of human life on one hand and at the same time say well if the life has been created well then it needs to be protected and dignified um these are not mutually exclusive and so right. i can say i'm i'm very I, I was talking lots about this the other day i mean when i was listening reading that very article about sperm donation you know kind of the enormity of of the ramifications of what that even meant hit me almost newly for the first time like what is a sperm donation what is all that you know all this this is our plane with fast and loose with human life sounds and, like this you know, guy was surprised by it too he was right. com completely caught unawares by how deeply he felt for these children that's right and we were too i mean that's the thing like we you know when you're talking about this is again one of the problems when you're talking about embryos before you have a child it's hard to, to you know before you become a parent it's it's difficult to really conceive of the changes you're going to undergo. You know, we've talked about this in all sorts of capacities. And so, you know, it's not hard to sort of discard these children and then all of a sudden wake up when they're seven, eight, nine and realize that you had four more, you know, that you could have had that you just let the doctor say, well, they aren't the right, they aren't the right quality. You know, they'll say something like, well, they're, you know, we rank them A, B, and C, and we don't want to implant, you know, C-level embryos. And so we'll just go ahead and take care of those. And in your grief and in your sort of, you know, confusion, unless you're guided, unless you've thought about this, which is I would say any pastor out there should really educate himself on this because you can get, you know, the tragedy that we've run into is we've had people who are lamenting the fact that they're well past childbearing age, and yet they've got four or five embryos just sitting there and they don't know what to do with them. And of course I say, well, you know, here's what you need to do at this point. You need to put them up for adoption. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I haven't had a response on that directly, but I do have two people. I don't know if they listen or not who have four children instead of three because of mm -hmm. conversations we had concerning what they needed to do with that final embryo, even though their wives were closing in on um, being too old. And yet, um, you know, I was like, haven't you seen father of the bride too? Like, you know, you know, you know, you're too old, you're too old. So keep it going. I don't know, Matt, I mean, you've had experience with this in your church or your. Yeah. We've, we've had several couples who've been able to have babies and we had one who, one couple who followed your route. This is before, long before you did it. So I'm sure the technology was a little bit different, but, um, they made the decision not to have, they told the doctor, we only want this many embryos right yeah, yeah so so the, and they had and they went ahead and they implanted all of them so um you know they have one daughter now but they implanted all of the all the embryos and the rest were were um uh what do you Died. call them yeah 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 so so 
But that is that's, that's I think that's what you have to do. You can't just procreate and have have living human beings frozen and then and then kill them. You have to you have to find some way to prolong that life. Um, yeah, and the number of people that I've met that haven't considered it, uh, and, and to be honest, you know, we were considering it, but I'm again, I'm grateful. It's like the angel, of the Lord, or the the Lord's intervention through a angel um, in Berlin who um, who really helped us because you know we were I was talking one way out of grief and I was being corrected, you know, lovingly, um, very quickly, and I was just I I, mean, I can't be more grateful for that. But but the number of people that don't consider it until it's too late is just legion. I mean, I mean, it's almost everyone, as far as I can tell. I mean, almost, almost everyone that does this has at least been either either has had some discarded that you know weren't quote unquote good quality, or have ones that they're holding on to, and that's a real problem because you know it, it is particularly the discarding them because it's you know it's almost it's almost like the the pain of an abortion. You know, it's like what the child that could have been, except it's almost you know there's stories about women going to the there's an article, I forget where it was, but she went to the hospital where the, the embryos were being frozen and like wept outside of this hospital because she was unable to at that point to give birth to them anymore. And it's like stories like that is just heartbreaking. So you say, well, you know, we need to, we need to get ahead of this because I do think that like with every technology, there's some good uses for it and there's some bad uses for it. But for instance, like one of, here's one of the things that people could have confronted with if you do a genetic testing on the embryo, you can, you can find out all sorts of things, you know, before it's implanted, like whether it has spina bifida or um, down syndrome or other, some other markers. And, you know, you can, you can rank it in that respect. And so it's, but there's a slight chance that you can harm the embryo also. And what are you going to do with that information once it comes, you know, what are you going to, and so most people or many people, particularly non-Christians, I would imagine um, simply say, well, discard all the ones that have any possible chance of abnormalities or defects. And which also brings into, you know, you talk about huge moral implications there. And so this is where like, even for Christians, I mean, I, we, we refuse to have the embryos tested. So it didn't matter one way or the other. We don't want to take the chance. And honestly, I didn't want the, that knowledge. You know, I didn't want, it's like the knowledge of good and evil. I said, Lord, I'm going to go, won't go one way or the other. I mean, you know, we're, we're going to have this baby. Um, but I just want to, you know, we're just going to pray and trust. And, you know, if you, if you want us to be our witness to be that of a parents of a special needs child, well, then so be it. Um, but, but that's not where most people are. Well, I mean, it's, it's, that's not just a question of, of people who are going in, in vitro route. I mean, you, even people who have succeeded in getting pregnant. I mean, that, that's one of the one of the first things your doctor will ask you uh, in, is, do you want to have you know these series of tests to find out if there's anything wrong with a baby? And if there is, you can abort it. That's the, that's the underlying underlying message. Sometimes it's not even underlying. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, it can be very overt. And that's actually what our Emma, our, our first. This is down in Virginia, Kaiser, I think it was the healthcare agency. But yeah, they said, hey, you need to know whether you want to have this baby or not. So we need to do these tests. And we said, well, we don't want to do the tests. And they were really almost angry. It, was, it wasn't just surprised. It was like angry. Why, why, would you, why would you risk bringing someone into the world who's going to be so flawed? Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of the, the incredulity there. So that, that kind of thing is, that kind of idea about life is pervasive. Um, and it's not just in the in the realm of, of in vitro. 
Let's talk about surrogacy for a second. This is the idea, or not the idea, the practice of hiring a woman to carry a child, either for a husband and wife who, for whatever reason, can't carry their own, or for two men or two women who desire to have a child and cannot because of their non-matching biology. They bring another person into the situation and involve them into the moral calculus what do we what do you guys think about surrogacy as a moral issue i'm sure jd's thought more about it than i have since he's been in this, this round but i i just on the surface just on, on on what little i have read and thought about it look technology is 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 wonderful in helping people who who may not have ever been able to have babies to have babies and now have babies right things like in vitro but i do think there should be some ethical limits to it and having having a, another woman besides your wife or besides the mother uh, gestate the child for the nine months i think that interrupts something that god intended in the whole process of giving giving birth and i and so i don't i don't think i don't think that should be something that people do willingly i think it's more understandable in the case of a husband and a wife who are who really want to have a baby and they and they go that route because the for some reason the wife can't can't just say I I can understand why someone might, might make that choice, but even in that case, I think you there's a there's a time when you say okay this it, God has not given us this for some reason and and He's good and He's sovereign and so we're going to rest in what He's given us and the blessings that we do have and not go forward with having some other woman bear yeah. bear the yeah. truck. Because you're also inflicting something on the surrogate, even if even if she thinks she's totally on board and is willing and cooperative and is totally in. She has no idea the feeling and the connection that will be fostered that will be then ripped away from her. Right, exactly. And then in the case of two men or two women who are having or two men, usually two men, I guess, who are having this i mean then of course it's completely yeah. it's it's a, it's, a, it's a complete travesty because not, not only are you putting the woman who's bearing the, the nine months or, or gesturing the child for nine months in this place of of nurturing this child but then you're also you're also doing that for the sake of of having this child set into this really abusive circumstance where he's going to be raised in a perverse environment so and whichever that woman provided the egg for that um, there's like multiple yeah. people involved here. Yeah, right. Exactly. You've, you've, had, you've had this. This is this is where technology becomes, in my view, demonic and and the perversion of of the original purposes of God to have a male and female come together and have a baby. Uh, right. it's not it's not helpful in any way. I mean, I can I can see how with a man and a wife you could you could kind of see how people could come to that conclusion. Not in the case of a gay couple and. Um, well, I think, yeah, I agree with all of that, Matt. And I think, you know, I've, been, I've thought a lot about this. I mean, just in the context of, of our own, you know, walk with infertility. But, you know, at some point, Christians in particular have to come to grips with adoption. You know, what does it mean to have been adopted? And what does it mean to adopt? Because because a lot of the desire from surrogacy comes from a, I believe, ultimately over overwhelming need to have your own sort of genetic progeny because look there's nothing wrong the desire for be fruitful and multiply the desire for children 
sexual desire. These are good desires. These are, these are, you know, and the lack of them is not something to be dismissed. It's something to be lamented. I mean, this is what, this is what the, you know, barrenness in the old Testament in particular, but throughout all of, you know, most of certainly Christian history is a, is a, is a deep source of pain. So I don't want to minimize that. And I certainly, you know, walked, had to walk that path, that reality to the point where we said, you know, at what cost are we going to, you know, inflict this sort of medical trauma on Liza's body? Um, at what expense, you know, just actual practical monetary uh, expense um, is, are we going to spend and, and how long will we do it to get to a point where you finally say, Lord, you know, like you said, this is, you, you know, you didn't promise us this. You didn't promise that our bodies would work the way it should. Um, because there always is a glut of, of children, you know, having already been born that are, you know, from infants to high schoolers that are in desperate need of being cared for and protected and welcomed as adopted children into families. But you have to get to the point where you you give up and you sort of accept that. Now, we got there and accepted that. And then we tried IVF one more time and got Tucker. So that was um, that was kind of how we did it. And then we had um, and then we adopted John conventionally or John the third, you know, but that was very poignant for me because we have two biological girls and three adopted sons. And so, you know, I don't look at them as any less my son, although, you know, I do have days where I consider what it would have been like to look at a little little mini me or something, you know, wonder what Liza and my, you know, um, you know, son would look like, but you know, that's just something that the Lord obviously, well, he didn't have, that wasn't part of his plan for us. And so when I see surrogacy, you know, I think outside of the the obvious moral wrongs of the people who, by definition, cannot have children, you know, the, the homosexual couples, often what I think the desire for surrogacy is rooted in is a lack of appreciation for the profundity of what it means to be adopted. And particularly as Christians, you know, we say this is the primary metaphor that Paul uses for our relationship through Christ to, to God the Father. We've now been adopted as sons not just sons, but heirs, you know, heirs with Christ. And so, you know, it was poignant for me that we named John, John the third. It was like, well, you know, he's no less my son. He's the bearer of my name. You know, he's going to look different than I do, but certainly in many meaningful ways, he will be molded and shaped for better or worse by me, which is a great responsibility, you know? And so I think, you know, and then of course there's the most, there's the most vain way of doing surrogacy, which is simply not wanting to have your body, transformed by the great inconvenience of giving birth. Um, and so that's like the hyper sort of modern, you know, way, you know, the vanity of it, you know, I'd like to have a baby. just want to, don't want to have to inconvenience myself in any way at all, including physically. And yet we see now you read all the papers about the people that are having trouble bonding and, um, you know, sort of connecting with these um, infants, you know, which is obviously difficult from an adoptive standpoint, period. But if there was an expectation that just because it was your genetic child, that somehow if you didn't carry it, it would be easier to connect, you know, that that doesn't seem to be the case. So that's my um, so, as, so as far as surrogacy goes, I think that the number one fear about it all in general is that it's turning um, pregnancy into a commodity, you know, because you've got people that will do anything for money. I mean, you know, if you're poor enough, you'll consider a lot of things you wouldn't otherwise do. And there's a lot of people who you know, for $50,000 to do a lot of things. And that's, you know, that's, you gotta, I mean, that's a, that's an evil. If we were letting women, well, I guess, you know, in a certain moral um, universe, people don't have a problem with people selling their bodies for any, any other reason. So this yeah. is just put that on the list. Well, I mean, it's the same thing from the male perspective from sperm, sperm donorship. I mean, I, I had a friend who 
did that. He thought of it, hey, free money. What, I'm not losing anything. Uh, sure. <laughs> so, so you, I mean, it's, but it is a form of selling sex. It's a form of selling your, selling yourself and, and getting money in exchange. So did he come to regret that? Did he feel oh, at the yet. end that he blossomed? He's not, not, he's, not a, he's not a Christian. So he's, I'm sure he's not uh, at, this, at this point. He but, still really enjoys that Xbox that he got. Yeah, yeah. For, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's interesting. It does call, it does call the question about what we know about ourselves. And I think this is true of abortion too. The idea that a woman can have an abortion and just move on seems to me to be manifestly false. Certainly I've heard people say that that's the case. And I've heard people who have had abortions say that that's the case. I just don't ultimately believe them, at least not in the long term, that we we cannot do these things to the lives that touch our life, whether they're microscopic, small or large, and have them not have an effect on us. This is the same thing I was saying earlier about surrogacy. As long as, you know, it's it's the, the culture we live in now where consent is the only moral framework that matters. As long as she said it's okay, how can it be wrong if she said it's okay? But the Bible is very clear that we don't know not only what we want, but what's good for us. We are blinded to all of these things. And when it comes to sex and life, these are the core things. And it makes all the sense in the world that they would impact us in ways that we can't begin to imagine when we're simply wondering what we might like or what might feel good to us. I do think what J.D. said earlier is right, that that before you had children of your own, you the just the thought of an embryo is really so kind of theoretical. You don't it's just it's it's a you don't even it's, it has, doesn't have any emotional impact at all i mean it's just a conceived thing but bundle of cells well, our culture cells, has right? taught yeah. us that yeah. our culture yeah, exactly. has ill-formed us right and i think sure. that and of course and i think that's a I think that's an example of of corporate self-justification i mean if you, you, you yeah if you can um if, if you can say that something is less human because of its size <laughs> then then that will help you go on with life after you've killed it or after you've right. uh, so so that's 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 what that is it's 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 our, our our society's attempt to justify the mass murder of, of babies in the womb and then of course the frozen embryos die as well so but yeah i mean but once you have kids i mean i think i think that that begins to to really dawn on you what you've done i mean at least if if you or, or you have to let's put it this way even if you're not a christian you have to fight harder to shove the to shove the truth down if you are a christian then the reality of what you've done in the past becomes more and more pressing like i, I told you guys before i participated in an abortion and so i when i it, the, the, the weight of that didn't really hit me until i became i knew it was wrong but the weight of that didn't hit me until i became a christian and i oh that's oh I, I'm, I'm i'm a murderer but then the, the real weight of it didn't happen until I was holding, you know, Emma in, in my arms. The first, you know, is a new dad two or three minutes after she was born, and I realized, wow, I, I, I don't think I thought it then, but in, in the, the coming days, I killed one of these. I, mm. I, I destroyed one of these, and yeah, so I, I do think that it leaves an indelible mark on on a, on a person when you uh, when you when you do that. So, yeah. How could it not? This is a image bearer of Almighty God, and 
so are you. And so it it's there's that that Wall Street Journal story said that this man saw a photograph of somebody that he recognized and knew to be his daughter. And Ooh. that's a there's a parallel there when you're you're dealing with yourself as an image bearer of God, knowing that you are indelibly impacting and perhaps ending lives of others there there is no way to escape that weight you can shut the door on it you can lower the blinds you can shut the lights off but it's still standing there on your stoop and it's not going away that's right i mean exactly and there's another i mean it's just another facet of our schizophrenia of this modern age that we've been called to live in you know because i don't want to glorize glamorize the past you know i mean the pre indoor plumbing uh, penicillin world i don't have any interest in returning to <laughs> um but at the same time it is it is not just me it was clear to say that after the birth control pill after the sexual revolution like the the social dynamics that have been at play for millennia have been upended and so we're still living relatively close to that giant revolution and you see the wreckage all around you know you had all of a sudden you, you see the divorce you know, divorce is easier, promiscuity is easier, broken relationships between men and women are um, a result of all this. You know, you see the rise of porn, you see the rise, I mean, you see all of this desacralization of the sexual union, which I know, you know, we talked about before, some people have over-sacralized, but at the same time, we can say that it is a, it is a deeply intimate and God-glorifying gift uh, in the context of marriage. And so it's unsurprising that the devil would use that and deface it and de try to deface and de um, demean it in any possible way. And what we're looking at is the ramifications of that having taken place, not entirely, but certainly, you know, there are forces trying to make it worldwide. You know, and this is probably one of the major exports that we, um, many in the West, you know, seem to bring to the poor benighted, you know, backwards people of the rest of the world is if we can just get with the abortion program and get with the contraceptive program and, you know, same-sex marriage, then, you know, then the world will be free and beautiful and, and you know, as it should be. And so, you know, I think it, when I look at it, I see it's all part of a whole is that there's this gift that is um, a beautiful gift to be revered and, and it is literally life-giving. And so, of course, it becomes the number one enemy of the world, the flesh and the devil, you know, and I think that's where um, we as Christians have to repent, you know, like you mentioned, Matt, but we all have we all have unclean hands in this respect to some degree, you know, whether it's through cavalier attitudes towards sex in general or whether it's through, you know, you know, lewd images or all the things, you know, we have to we have to be vigilant in our own lives to confess and repent and be absolved, but also model and hopefully said, you know, let me show you a more beautiful way. You know, this is what we're saying we're showing the world. And we've talked about this before, but I'm I have a hope. I think that that we've got some people eating the pig pods, you know, we've got some prodigals that are getting just about to the end of the promised, you know, fun of um, a light, lifetime spring break. And I'm grateful that the Lord didn't get let me get as far away as as I could have. But, you know, we all have to go as far as we need. And you see some people who you say, well, goodness, you know, at what point would you might may you, would you consider um, an alternative way? And I pray for them by name. You know, some of them I know um, fairly well. And yet in the church, I see people that are starting to move closer and closer to the front, you know, sticking around a little bit longer, starting to ask a little bit more questions. Like I had a lunch with a father of young children the other day who finally, after 
you know, even just a year here, we finally came to a rector's forum that I was teaching about, you know, equipping your student, your, your children in particular to sort of understand their God-given identity over against their, you know, ideologically chosen one. And that sparked a interest in him because he just began to wonder how he was going to navigate the local, you know, school system with all of the various flags and banners and things. And so, and so again, I'm, you know, it's painful because sin is destructive, you know, and ultimately leads to death. I mean, that's what James says, you know, desire and sensuality lead to death. But, but I think that the flip side of it, the redeemed sinner who can embrace the good things of God can see some of these advances in technology as beautiful, um, miraculous almost gifts to the people of God. And I think that we can help be shepherds uh, to help people think through these things so that they don't get in situations where they have inadvertently or even just unwittingly um, put themselves in, in a place that they could, that they'll finally only be healed of in heaven, which is, that's a, you know, it's a long time to walk from 28 to 78. If you carry these things, you can lay them down um, and you can be absolved, but you know, we're hoping to prevent some of that if we can. A good rule of thumb is technology is a great blessing so long as it enhances the natural processes that we've been given. Like the, if, if it's, if it's used to, to correct, to cure a malady or to enhance uh, help along a process that God has has, has set in, in into the created order. It can be it can be used, but if it's if it's to to stop something that God has set up, so a, a, a puberty blocker, for example, let's stop a kid from going going through adolescence, or let's uh, let's let's keep a woman from having to have a baby by using birth control so that she can prolong her time in her career until she wants to. Those kinds of things I think are much more difficult to justify and because because the, at that point you've because you've taken you've said what god has given us in the created order is is needing some kind of corrections kind of uh, mm-hmm. some kind of uh limitation um and then we're going to put it in place so again not, not to say that if you've done those things i mean i know a lot of women who have been on birth control so don't please don't misunderstand me these are things that because of the time we live in we all can become confused and make decisions that we regret and that's why we have the cross because we can all confess these things and be forgiven and and not have them hang over our heads but that going forward really think through how technology might interrupt what god has made rather than enhance and help amen yeah and i think that just points to the need for you know christian wisdom you know which is not the 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 you know, law, there's, there are laws out there, but there's, there are nuances and complexities in individual cases that have to be taken into account, uh, which, you know, because there are, there are good ways to do IVF and bad ways. There are selfish ways to surrogacy. There's, you know, possible, I mean, you could conceive of a situation where, you know, someone had a ovarian cancer or something as a child and, you know, their sister wanted to carry, you know, you can, you could yeah, think of absolutely. something like this and say, well, and I think that's where, you know, just the challenge, the the encouragement would be, you know, listener, stay in your good local church. You know, hopefully you have a pastor that is at least aware of these things. They don't have to be personally involved in it like I was, but like, you know, at least know people to talk to. And you just be deliberate and prayerful about these incredibly important um, decisions. Like I have a conversation with all the pre-marriage people about birth control because there are a variety of ways of doing birth control, some of which are just abortive patients that just kill yep. the embryo. 
um, and some which are more, you know, sort of prophylactic. But even then, you know, I I regret, you know, certainly in light of what the challenges we had, um, having any of that. You know, if I could go back and do it again, I would have started, you know, on our honeymoon. I had a eight and a half month old baby, whatever, you know, whatever it is, honeymoon baby, it would have been great. So <laughs> can you believe this baby came three months early? <laughs> but, uh, but I um that's a joke from a movie that has nothing to do with my <laughs> actual life. Uh, <laughs> just so you know. But um but I think that what's that? that's right. <laughs> Uh, but I think, you know, I just hope anyone listening who's involved in this, you know, as you said, Matt, particularly if they have, you know, didn't have a, a wise counsel at some point and got sideways in some of these decisions and have come to regret it, you know, will just genuinely confess and receive the absolution that the Lord promises, because that's the story. That's what he does. I mean, I think of Paul all the time, you know, someone who's, you know, was a complicit in all these murders, you know, who becomes the evangelist. And he still says, that I'm the chief of sinners, and yet he speaks with great joy and affection. You know, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ? You know, famine, tribulation, shipwreck, the sword, nothing. You know, and so I think that's the message that is going to need to be louder and louder going forward as more and more people, sperm donors, people who had abortion, surrogate mothers who don't have their own children, you know, who who say, was, was it worth $10,000, and so on and so forth, come to hopefully by the power of the Spirit, revelation of what they've done, that they'll look for the only place they can go to find rest and absolution, which will be the cross. And so, you know, that's my prayer. And so I've talked about these things with great affection for um, sinners because I have, you know, in certain ways resemble them in many ways, uh, simply a redeemed sinner who um, is grateful for uh, some outlet from the um, reality of the chains that I've wrought myself in life, you know, as Jacob Marley said. That's that's going to preach, and I think the more we preach that, the more the more redemption we're going to we're going to watch. I think as reformed evangelicals, we can hang our hats often on Jesus's claim to be the way, the truth, and the life, with an emphasis on the way and the truth. And he also is the life. And as we live in this world where all of these things, as we've talked about so far in this show can so often lead if not to actual literal death to the death of the soul we can offer a jesus who is life and lord of life and the way to new life for those who put their faith in him well thank you for listening to stand firm this week if you want to keep the conversation going as always you can be in touch with us rate and review the podcast on iTunes, send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thank you to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. 